take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Last uh, two weeks ago, I preached from the Gospel of Mark, and I was asked, are, are you starting a series on the Gospel of Mark? No, I am trying to survive. <laughs> Let me explain. Uh, uh, my wife's mother is very, very ill. She had brain surgery, and so my wife's been gone several days, and I'm here with our disabled son. And I'm grateful for some of the help from church and from people in the Bibb County school system, special ed teachers that have been at my house. And uh, so I had to pick some things that are very familiar to me to preach from because I could not just start from scratch. Uh, it, it, uh, well, you would, you're glad I'm not starting from scratch, let me put it that way. Uh, and the Gospel of Mark is my favorite book of the Bible since I started walking with Christ years ago. I've spent more time studying it, teaching it in small group Bible studies, probably preaching from it through the years. And the heart of this sermon was preached to you nine years ago in 2003. If you remember, my hat's off to you because I usually, I read it and I can't remember any of it. And uh, so I have uh, been working on this, praying through it, changed a number of things. But if you say, hey, that sounds a little familiar, it probably is if you were here back in 2003. Uh, my wife should be back uh, late tonight. And then you'll hear something new next week. <laughs> okay. If, if Mark is preached next week, you'll know things are still in disruption. Okay, Mark chapter 2, um, where Jesus heals a paralyzed man, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Jesus came into the world to deal with sin. It's just that simple. He came to deal with our biggest problem. Sin has made a separation between you and the one who made you. You and I are born spiritually dead, so the Bible says. We have committed crimes against God, and he says the punishment or wages of such is death. Now, it's just second nature probably for all of us to think that, well, if I do enough good things, I can make myself right with God. And so it's not uncommon that very religious people and even very non-religious people think that if there is a God, I can please him some way simply by being good, 
If I try hard, God will see the good intentions of my heart. He'll see my motives, and he will make me right with him. He will accept me. But the truth is, the scriptures tell us there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. All the good deeds in all the world, as good as those things are, and as much as we should do them, will not do away with our problems of sin and death. Thankfully, God is also loving and merciful, and in his love and his mercy, he sent a substitute to take the punishment that we deserve. No other substitute would do but Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Even his enemies at the end of his life had to think up false things to accuse him of. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. While he was on that cross, God put all my sins on him and punished him in my place. He took the punishment. He took the penalty for my sins against him, and he made a full, complete payment. He died on that cross. That was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us because the wages of sin is death. His body was taken down from his cross, was placed in a tomb. His enemies thought, well, that will be the end of that. Three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave. He was truly alive. Death could not keep its hold on him because he had paid the penalty for death. Before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers to go into all the world and tell people of every nation, every ethnic group, about this gift of eternal life which God now offers them through Jesus. So have you received the gift of eternal life? To do so, you must believe that Jesus was God, the Son, perfect, that he died for you, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, that when he died on the cross, that God the Father put your sins on Jesus, punished him in your place, and now you go from going your own way, living your own way, to living where you turn toward him, you repent, that is, you have a change of mind. When that happens, you're enabled to begin to love God. And the Bible says Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what Mark is showing us here in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, he's covered a lot of ground already in chapter 1. He's writing to the Romans. The Romans thought in terms of action. They were more impressed with what someone did than what he said. So you don't find any sermons in Mark. You don't have a chapter like Matthew where he gives chapters 5, 6, and 7 to the Sermon on the Mount. We don't even have that in the Gospel of Mark because his target audience wanted to know what did this person do? Who was this man? So in chapter 1, it begins like an action movie. You've got the baptism by John the Baptist. You've got Jesus beginning his public ministry. You've got him going out into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. You have him calling the disciples, the early disciples, to follow him. You have him healing Peter's mother-in-law. You have him casting a demon-possessed man out of the synagogue. You have all this happening in this chapter 1. That's over a year into the public ministry of Jesus covered in one chapter. And so we come to chapter 2. And it says he was at home. This was his home base. Whether the house belonged to Jesus or whether the house belonged to Peter, we aren't sure. But it was his home base of ministry. It's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. Now, because of all that had happened, people had heard about him, and they had crowded to this house to hear him and see him, and there's a huge crowd there. It's a massive crowd. And it says in this chapter, Jesus was speaking the word to them. What's the word? That's the gospel. That's the good news I just told you about. We see it summarized, encapsulated in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So that's what 
Jesus is talking to them about. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, They came. They came. Who were they? Well, were they friends? Were they brothers? Were they cousins, relatives of some sort? We aren't told. We only can observe that they obviously loved this man. They cared enough about him that they wanted him to be helped. And so the crowd presents, the crowd at the house presents a problem for these men carrying this paralyzed man. So verse 4 tells us they go up on top of the house. Houses then and now in that part of the world had flat roofs, which also served like our decks or porches. People would go up there late in the day when the sun would begin to go down and you could sit outside the hot house and you could visit. So it's somewhat like a patio, though it was on the roof. They go up and began to take things into their own hands. They say, we've got to get him down there. And the only way they knew to do it apparently was to dig a hole in the roof. It would have been quite large, large enough to lower a man down, which they do. And they lower him down in front of Jesus. And then verse 5 gives an interesting phrase. Jesus seeing their faith. He saw their faith. Well, you and, I, you and I can't see faith. You can't look at me. I can't look at you and say, oh, I see your faith. is real strong today or, or, or whatever. What did he see? Well, he saw the results of their faith. He saw their actions. He saw what the book of James says, that faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. So they had believed that Jesus could help. We aren't told whether they really thought he was the Messiah, whether he was the promised Redeemer. Maybe they just thought this person has an ability to heal. We aren't told that. We don't know. But what knowledge they had, they acted on. It was a faith that worked. It resulted in them doing something. Nothing is going to deter them. And so they overcome every obstacle that was placed between them and Jesus. They are to carry him there through the crowd. They come to the obstacles. It's difficult. They can't get in. And so they go up. Let's climb up on the roof of the house may seem like a crazy idea at first, but before you know it, they're doing it. They're desperate. So that's what Jesus saw. And then now Jesus ministers to the paralytic, and we come to the main point of the story. In verse 5, he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you were a friend of a, or brother or whatever the situation was of this paralytic, and we aren't told the extent of his paralysis, Maybe he'd always been that way since birth. Maybe he had had some kind of disease. Maybe he had fallen. Maybe he was just paraplegic. Maybe he was quadriplegic. Maybe he couldn't use his arms either. We are not told. But if you're his friend and you see his need to be healed and you lower him down, how would you feel if the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, my son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> we bring him here, and this is what you say? We bring him here and tear up the roof and lower him down because he's got an obvious need, and you talk about forgiveness? Not exactly, perhaps, what they had in mind. But that's the need that Jesus addresses. What do you feel is your greatest need? today. Don't answer out loud, but seriously, in your heart, if you were to say, if I were to say, what is your greatest need? 
probably some of us would say, what I need? I need some guidance about the future, or I need some wisdom about a decision, or I need some more money to get me out of the hole or whatever troubles I'm behind in. I need some healing of this disease. I got a son that needs healing who's disabled. Parents, what is the greatest need of your child? You say, well, I want them to do well in school. Do you think their greatest need is to be an honor student or to be a successful star athlete or to be a success in life? Don't want them to marry the wrong person. You know, I want them to be secure. Got to have enough money. Got to have all the things they had. I wouldn't want them to have less. Is that what you think their greatest need is? I can tell you right now. The Bible makes it clear. Your greatest need, their greatest need is to be forgiven of their sins and to be right with the Creator. Forgiveness was this paralyzed man's greatest need. It probably wasn't obvious to anybody except Jesus. And now he had been brought to the right place. Well, what's going to happen this moment before Jesus heals him are the seeds of a sinister plan that come to the culmination on the cross. You know about the crucifixion of Jesus. You see the hatred and how even Pilate tried to say, what is the deal? This man has not done anything wrong. But the religious leadership would have it no other way. They wanted the man's blood. You know where that started? In this house in Mark chapter 2. This is the first confrontation that we have between Jesus and the religious leaders. And when it happens, they don't even say anything. But here's what we come to. We come to this where the scribes are thinking. Let me, the scribes, who are the scribes? They were the teachers of the Old Testament law. They were the specialists in its interpretation. You did not decide one week to become a scribe and get a correspondence course. It was a hard, rigorous course of study. A man would need to be 40 years of age before he was fully accredited and qualified, accredited in my sense of the word, but qualified to be a scribe. They were the religious and the academic aristocracy of the day. They were well thought of. If you'd been in that house, you would have thought highly of those scribes. But in verse 8, Jesus confronts them, and it's a very puzzling scene. Think about it. Jesus looks at the man. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. No one else has said a word, not, not related, not the scribes in light of what I'm getting ready to say. No one has said anything. Jesus turns to them and says, why are you reasoning that way in your hearts? Now, if you'd been seated right there in the house and you'd seen the paralyzed man lowered down, Jesus says, my sons are forgiven. Then he looks over and says, why are you reasoning that way in your hearts? What? They didn't say anything. How does he know what they're thinking? Well, he did know what they were thinking. And what they were thinking, Mark tells us, is no one can forgive sins but God alone. This man is blaspheming. Who is he to pronounce the forgiveness of sins? Let me ask you, were the scribes correct? Nod your head. Yes, their theology was right. They knew God, and only God, ultimately can forgive sins. Now, they weren't saying that you and I, and we don't ask one another's forgiveness when we do something wrong, hopefully, to one another, we ask forgiveness. But they knew our sin is ultimately against God. Only God can forgive it. Where they're wrong is they obviously don't think Jesus is God. But their theology was correct from an understanding of forgiveness. So he says, why are you reasoning that way in your hearts? Then he poses a question, not only to them, but to the whole group. 
And he's going to offer proof in verses 9 to 12. And he says, let me put it to you. Well, this may Which is easier? He's going to give them. It's an honest question. Which is easier? And he's going to give two choices. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? Those two. Now, I have asked this in many, many small group Bible studies, and there's always a split decision. There's a response. Some say, well, this is easier and that's easier. But here's the right answer. (laughs) Believe me, I've read enough on it. The right answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it can't be verified. It's like me coming up to you and saying, oh, so-and-so, you're a blessed man today. Receive this blessing from me. And you go, well, what's that? Yeah, you've been blessed. I can't prove it. It's intangible. And so to say your sins are forgiven is easier because it cannot be verified. Whereas if Jesus, in front of all these people, maybe a crowd this size, says, rise, take up your pallet, and walk, that has to be verified, right? Are you all with me? Okay, so which is easier? Rise, uh, sins are forgiven, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. And Jesus says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is the easier, I'll do the harder. I, I, I like to think of it this way. If I had a 10-pound dumbbell right here and a 100-pound dumbbell right here, and I were to ask, which is easier, to lift the 10-pound or to lift the 100? Well, obviously, it's, it's easier to lift the 10, right? In order, that you know I, in order that you may know I can lift the 10, I'll lift the 100. Because if I can lift the 100, I don't need to lift the 10 because it's obvious I could do that as well. So Jesus says, in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the man and says, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. And look at verse 12. The response of the crowd, they are amazed. They're glorifying God. They worship. They've never seen anything like this. All right, that's the story. Let me tell you what some of the main lessons are. I'll give you three of them. I take from this one main lesson, forgiveness of sin is still our greatest need. It is in vogue despite what we hear. It is the need of the hour. The feeling in our culture is that when the church talks about forgiveness, it's out of date. It just sounds so 1950-ish or 1940-ish, like we're peddling something nobody wants and nobody needs. It's like me coming up to you saying, I've got something great. You've got to have it. It will change your life. You've never seen anything like this before. It only cost you $100. Okay, Chip, well, what is it? It's a black and white television. You say, what? You've either lost your mind or, you, or you're being funny. And so we say, we've got the need of the hour. We've got the need in the church. The message is to be forgiven of sins. And the culture goes, that is so yesteryear. That just sounds so dated. It's not needed. Why is that? Well, because people believe that the church is talking about forgiveness, and it just seems outdated because forgiveness means there's sin, which means there's guilt. And guilt assumes some kind of moral standard. But we know moral standards are just arbitrary rules and mores that were decided upon by some previous generation, and therefore they're not absolute. Since moral standards and absolutes are bogus, then there is no sin and there is no guilt, and there's certainly no need for forgiveness. So speak, to speak of such is to be hopelessly outdated. And so the culture thinks to have sin, you have to have a moral standard, which someone would have to reveal, and we don't have that. 
But since there is no God, therefore there is no absolute truth, and therefore there is no eternal moral code, and therefore no sin, and so there should be no guilt, and there's certainly no need for forgiveness from God. So whether you want to marry or cohabitate or divorce or whatever you want to do, the idea is there... These are just the views of previous generations or cultures, but they're not the views now. There is no moral code. There's no sin. There's no guilt. There's no need for forgiveness. God loves everybody. Enjoy it. Just be quiet and relax. Settle down. That's what the culture says. But just for discussion's sake, and I want you to think about this. I know there... I just want to give you something to think about. When we leave God out, as our culture does, all the world around us, What's the problem of not even speaking about forgiveness? The problem is even secular atheistic people still feel guilty. Now, as a college freshman taking sociology at the University of Alabama, we did have sociology at the university, in case you wondered, in two other classes. (laughs) I knew right then, I said, all right, We've studied all these cultures all over the world, and the professor's wanting all of us to understand that every culture has its own mores and its own ethics and its own morality, but never answer the question, then if it's so subjective, why does every culture have guilt? Why is there guilt everywhere? Every culture, every society has never been exposed to uh, Christianity or, or any kind of form of religion. Why do they have guilt? Do you know how affirming our culture is about abortion? Just step back for a second and think about it. For 39 years since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion on demand for all nine months of the pregnancy, since that was done 39 years ago, at the first service I said 49, somebody came up and corrected my math. I couldn't count back to 1973. But for 39 years, the constant, continual message is this is a woman's undeniable right to do with her body what she wants to. She should not be ashamed about it. She should not feel guilty about it. Then where, you know what the irony is? Why do people still feel guilty? Why as a pastor do I talk to people and say, well, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I just feel, I feel so bad about this. Because here's the answer. It's a simple answer. The remnants of God's law is written on our hearts. And Romans says that all people know through conscience and creation that there is a creator. And you can do everything you try to to erase it, but it's there. So forgiveness is still relevant. That is your greatest need. Second lesson. Only Jesus has the ultimate authority and power to forgive sins and to make you right with God. He is God. Although we seek and give forgiveness between one another, only the Lord can ultimately, truly forgive our sins. You cannot work off your debt to God. You can't do it with so many hours of community service. No other person can do it for you. You can't buy some kind of detergent or ritual or penance or anything else to wipe out your sins. Only Jesus can do that. No one else could help this paralyzed man. There wasn't a person on the planet that could have helped that man at that moment. And there's no one else who can ultimately forgive your sins and my sins. He came to the right place. Third lesson. God uses friends to bring friends to Jesus. The greatest thing you can do for a friend is to take them to Jesus, so to speak. Humanly speaking, this man, this paralyzed man, would not have been healed 
And from what we can tell, he was not only healed physically, he was also healed spiritually that day. That would not have happened had it not been except for the love and concern of those friends. They were the human instruments that God used. Their concern is about someone else. Do you realize that in Matthew, he gives the same account, and Luke gives the same account, and Mark gives that account, and none of the three gospel writers mention these guys' names? It is a labor of love that goes unsung. There's a term we use about being concerned about other people today. We used to call it evangelism, being evangelistically oriented. Then there was outreach oriented. But today, the term is missional. Trying to be missional in my life. Trying to be missional as a church. Now, what does that mean? It's a simple term. It means to live intentionally purposefully participating in God's mission to seek and to save the lost. That's what it means to live missionally. This is a missional story. And how great it is. What a blessing to have friends who want you to know Jesus. Throughout my early years in elementary school and then into junior high school, there were two friends who cared for my soul. One was named Bobby and another was named Mark. And we knew each other from the time we were 10 years old. We did sports together. We were in the same schools together. We lived in the same neighborhood. Many hours were spent together. They prayed for me. They spoke with me. When I didn't want them to speak with me, they would back off. But I knew they always cared. They invited me to Christian meetings. Looking back, Mark and Bobby were missional. I was their paralyzed man, so to speak. Mike Ross, this past year, he is a pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Charlotte, one of, the, one of the leading churches in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Mike became the moderator of our General Assembly and is serving this year as such. He's written many devotional books that a number of you have read. And uh, Mike's never been here to preach, though I hope that changes before too long. Uh, I've known Mike about 20 years in a casual relationship, been in a number of meetings with him, been at places where I've heard him teach and speak. If you were to hear Mike, you'd probably think he was born a preacher. <laughs> he, uh, given his commitment to the scriptures, but it was not that way. I heard Mike tell how he came to faith in Christ. I can't remember where he grew up, but he ended up right out of college in Memphis. He was working at a job. His plans were to become a Roman Catholic priest. But he said, I had an anger problem that was off the chart. I was just mad at everybody and everything. And there were these friends at work, this family, that one of the co-workers and his wife, they kept inviting him to go to their church. The church they attended is still in Memphis. It's called Central Church. It was, it was started and pastored by Jimmy Latimer. I believe it's an independent church. It's a big mega church. And so Mike said, finally, they badgered me so much. He said, I'd never been in a Protestant church, and I never planned to go in a Protestant church. He said, I finally went, and uh, they got their, the places packed. They went down. He, he said, I went to get them off my back and to be done with this. But we got there kind of late, so they took us right down to the front, you know, like if he was preachers here, right down there. And the pastor announced his passage being from the book of Revelation about the great whore that would arise in the last days, which Jimmy Latimer interpreted as the Roman Catholic Church. Preached his sermon about that. Mike said, I was sitting there, 
He said, I was so mad. I was so furious. Not only at what he was saying, he said, this was my first time. This is what goes on in these Protestant churches. And he said, I, I, he said, I was so furious. And he said, I left there and I thought, I'm going to go back, he said, because I'm going to make, I'm going to learn enough and I'm going to embarrass that man. Well, he said he kept going back and he was just furious, angry. That was the guy he was. Well, one night he said he came in, the service had already started, and he said he walked in, and he was smoking a cigarette, and he was getting ready to walk down the aisle, and the usher grabbed him and said, hey, you can't take a lit cigarette in there. Show you his attitude. He said, I took a big draw off the cigarette, blew it in the usher's face, threw it on the floor of the foyer, stomped it out, and walked in. But Mike, over a period of time, was converted, came to faith in Christ, came to faith, and now, why? Why did that happen? To... A, a couple of friends, a couple of friends that cared enough for him that they saw. He told me later after he was converted, he went back to that usher. He said, it was a little bitty guy. I went up to him and he said, I am so, and the guy stopped him and said, don't say anything. We knew you were an angry young man and we prayed for you. Now that's what those friends did. They cared about this guy. They took him to Jesus what is it that sends someone cross-culturally with missions? What is it that sends Kobe and Pamela McGinty to South Africa or Ellen Barnett to Mexico or Betsy Christensen to Latin America or Scott and Kathy Craig to Costa Rica or Jake and Anna Claire to, to Japan or Leo McGilley to Africa or Robbie and Murray Lathrop to Nicaragua and the list goes on and on. Tim and Nicole Mars to Muslims in North America, Steve and Rita Williams to New Zealand, to Jan Buchanan in Southern Sudan, to Paul and Laura Chin Chin, to Africa and Louis and Donnie St. Germain to Haiti. What is it? It's missional. They want to bring others to Jesus. The gospel spreads through word of mouth. That's how it spreads, through word of mouth, and that's how it spreads in Macon, Georgia. We are here today gathered as a congregation ultimately because it's spread by word of mouth going all the way back to the first century to where right here. Have you ever been to a new restaurant that opened up right after it opened and you went there and the service was exceptional and the food was delicious? What happened the next day when you saw some friends or people at work? Not that they can't be friends at work, but you saw them. You told them about it. You told them about it. You said, hey, let me tell you where I went last night. You need to go there too. George Barna and others that study this continually say most people in America who do not attend church say they would attend church. They would go if someone invited them to go. It's so simple. I try to include the gospel in every sermon, if only for 30 seconds. You know why I do that? I want you to hear it, but I also want you to know that if I bring someone there, they will hear it. When we first got cell phone plans years ago and texting was just becoming so necessary for our lives, and AT&T's plan included 200 texts. Remember? Some of you remember? I was looking at the bill, and I had a phone, and Barbara had a phone, and our daughter Rebecca, who was maybe in the 10th grade then, had a phone, and... We got 200 free texts per line, and Rebecca's was 1,900. I said, Rebecca, 1,900 texts? She said, oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I'll stop. I said, where where'd do you text 1,900? She said, well, she said, every Sunday I take the whole contact book in my phone, and I send out a message inviting everybody to come to youth group that night. I said, we're going unlimited. 
You know what that was? That's a tenth grader being missional, and her daddy was rebuked because that's somebody that cared about others enough to say, I want to talk to you. I want, you to, I want to bring you to Jesus. Last, I want to expand on this. God uses physical needs to drive us to spiritual needs. But I conclude with this. Do you have the assurance that you have received God's forgiveness? You can pray to him even now. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that Christ himself has authority to forgive sins. We look for other things that we think can cover our consciences. We justify our actions. And yet, Lord, they they don't heal us like this paralyzed man. They only offer uh, short-lived anesthesis. So we, we come and we pray that our trust would be in Jesus and in him only. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.